Welcome back to the Corner Kick Podcast. You know, I wish we had more to talk about today, but unfortunately, it's been a rather boring week in world football. And so just bear with us for the next 45 minutes as we go through such small things as, you know, Liverpool winning the title after 30 years. Um, Let's see. Well, Caleb, one of those things that you mentioned certainly should not go understated and that is the fact that Liverpool Football Club we actually just finished watching what was a phenomenal game between Chelsea and Manchester City and we'll we'll touch on that as well because this has probably been the best uh, game as far as quality goes since Project Restart began but after 30 long years what has felt like forever and for the first time in the Premier League era Liverpool Football Club the most winning aside in all of English football my club have lifted the Premier League trophy. Gentlemen, we knew this was going to happen for a long time. <laughs> oh, we weren't sure. We weren't sure. We weren't sure, even though they were a full 23 points at the top of the table. But gentlemen, it has happened. We can now say it definitively. Manchester City are no longer champions. The Mighty Reds have put both of their hands on the Premier League trophy in the year 2020. Nathan Strauss, they've done it. It's been a long time coming. What are your impressions, both of this game, Chelsea and Man City, and Liverpool finally winning the title? I I don't think it can be understated just how dominant this Liverpool team was. Uh, I was looking at 538 and some of their statistics and metrics earlier, and Liverpool right now have won uh, 2.83 points per game which if they can keep up this pace through the end of the season uh, projects to 108 points, which is just insane. Uh, Liverpool are also scoring some of the most goals uh, in Premier League history and Liverpool's points per game metric would put them easily at the top of uh, any era of English football, including that excellent Man City team from a year ago and from two years ago. Uh, So really Hats off here to to Jurgen Klopp and the team that he has built. I remember actually being with you uh, when the news broke that he was going to be first appointed back when he was taking that brief hiatus uh, post uh, his Dortmund time. And I remember his promising to deliver a title to Liverpool, and I'm very pleased that he's been able to do so. Uh, If the last week has shown me anything as an Arsenal fan, it is that Glory, while it may be fleeting, certainly lasts forever. So may you and your club uh, hold this year and last year and potentially years to come in your mind forever. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool have just been so... I'm not sure how many more superlatives I can really add to either our conversation or to what many people have said about their team. And they're just so dominant, so able to win under any circumstances, almost going unbeaten. Um, but in some ways, I think that might add a little more character um, to this campaign. The fact that they didn't lose focus, um, the fact that they were able to return after the coronavirus 
And despite a kind of slow start in the Merseyside Derby, really lighting up Crystal Palace and sort of confirming that this was not a fluke and that their team really is as versatile, amazing, and as title-worthy um, as possible. And I know that Nick's going to say his own poetic words about this, but I, I want to uh, forestall that conversation a little bit to talk about the game and project restart that gave Liverpool the title a little more, which is Chelsea versus Manchester City, which, as Nick alluded to, I think was really one of the best games we've seen since sports have resumed from coronavirus. And it was a game that, as a Liverpool fan and as a neutral, really kept you the edge of your seat the entire time. Yeah, and it, we, we've seen... So first of all, Pep Guardiola had some interesting selection choices going into this game. And we knew that in a battle of two top six teams, it was going to be impressive. Um, but I was actually a little bit surprised at both team sheets. I was surprised that William and Giroud got the start for Chelsea. Uh, I was surprised that City basically went strikerless uh, in a game where they knew that City uh, that Chelsea would probably be be packing the midfield. And you know we've seen now over the last two or three years, City have really failed to show up in big games. Uh, with the the probably the only exception being that game against Leicester where Company hit that rocket. Um, but we think back to you know the Champions League in 2016, 2017. Uh, we think about. Uh, big games like today as well, and a, a sloppy series of play from uh, from Mendy and Gundogan led to Christian Pulisic running seventy yards to to score a great goal, one that had the potential to immortalize him in the hearts of all Americans, especially American Liverpool fans. But City managed to claw one back with a traditionally brilliant goal uh, from Kevin De Bruyne. And after that, I mean, the game really, the second half of this game, I thought was particularly lively uh, as it as it opened up a little bit more and we saw missed chances at both ends. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Nathan, in that Man City recently have dropped some really huge games. We can just look at this season, uh, the loss at Old Trafford before the pause, uh, the loss away at Anfield that was so Liverpool rightly deserved to win that game 3-1. It was is dominant from them but yeah we've seen that uh city are dropping these big away games in the premier league something that under pep guardiola they hadn't done uh as recently as last season when they won the title what city really need to do is get a little bit more speed at the back uh we saw today that chelsea really really exploited the likes of benjamin mendy and the lack of speed and deafness of quality in the Man City back line. Uh, Fernandinho as well, who is just not getting any younger. Uh, and Rodri is not really proven to be the uh, rightful heir to the Fernandinho defensive midfield position for City. Uh, Mendy is a huge, huge liability, and they don't have any natural left backs to come in after loaning out Angelino. Uh, Zinchenko obviously is not, he's not a traditional left back by any sense of the word. And Kyle Walker as well. Is uh, he's getting getting on a bit in years, and his pace is slowly declining. So they really need to improve defensively if they're going to be at the upper echelon of this duopoly between themselves and Liverpool. Yeah, I I know that I think Pep it was with the rotation of the squad was trying to save some people for their FA Cup game this weekend, and I know that Pep really wants to win the FA Cup now that the Premier League title is so firmly. I mean, it's he can't get it anymore, obviously. Um, but I, <laughs> but I agree like Mendy, I mean, I've always not been a fan of him. I think he just doesn't fit their team at all, by which I mean, his touch is so much worse than 
literally every other player in the Manchester City squad. Um, like Zinchenko, I think, is probably slightly worse at defending and he's not a natural left back. But I think he's just slightly more on the wavelength of the type of creative players that occupy the rest of the team. And I think Mendy, as we know, also has a penchant to lose focus and he's not the most serious person. And that showed today in just a terrible, terrible error that allowed Pulisic. Yeah, Pulisic had a lot to do, but just kind of gifted a goal out of nowhere. And I really think that if Lampard had started Tammy Abraham, Chelsea would have piled on the goals in the first half because the Fernandinho-Laporte pairing was just so slow. Like, so, so, so slow. And I'm not surprised that the game kind of fully passed Fernandinho by when he did a Suarez-esque uh, handball on the penalty line. And you could see as he was waiting for the VAR check that what little hair he had was receding back into his head and he was aging before our very eyes. Yeah, City have built this excellent core of midfield and attacking players who are all in their prime. But ever since company announced that he would be leaving at the end of last year, it was clear that they need at least probably two more defensive pieces to really solidify this team. Obviously, uh, Laporte is a, one of the best defenders in the world. But, you know, Kyle Walker has been, you know, up to his shenanigans and doesn't really cut it on the pitch for me. They've tried their, they've tried out sort of this revolving door of fullbacks that haven't worked out. And Caleb, I would agree with you that Zinchenko probably offers more to Man City um, than a traditional sort of defensive fullback. But going forward for Pep Guardiola, I think he has some crucial decisions to make with uh, how to spend his cash, especially in a world that is... Uh, so starved for quality fullbacks and center backs. Yeah, and I, I also don't want to make it sound like Manchester City were that bad in this game. Um, I think they just made, like the goals they gave up were essentially all defensive errors. And there could have been a few more also, like when Pulisic drove around Kepa and then Kyle Walker, who we should give credit, amazing goal line clearance. And then also on the other end, you know, Sterling could have tipped the ball to Mares after a lightning quick counterattack, but decided to take it himself. And in kind of poetic fashion, as the ball careened off the post, you kind of knew from there that uh, Liverpool would probably win the title. So, I, I mean, this was, this was a very, very good back and forth game. Um, and I think it flattered Chelsea a little bit. Um, and certainly it exposed probably the worst of Man City. But the, these are definitely things that they're going to have to iron out as they continue their FA Cup and Champions League campaigns. I think the question, just as we finish this conversation about this game, is that uh, what are City going to do going forward to sort of take their style to the next level? They're always going to play attractive soccer uh, with the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, Sergio Aguero, Bernardo Silva. At least one, two of those players are in their prime. Aguero might be getting on a little bit in years. But I think the question for Pep Guardiola is that he needs to find a way, just like Jurgen Klopp found a way to evolve the gig and pressing style into something that was a little bit more organized and compact, and that eventually propelled them to uh, clinching the title today. But uh, Guardiola really needs to find a little extra niche to the tiki-taki game in order to keep Manchester City at the top. Um, and like Caleb was saying, I don't want to say that Man City are in dire straits because they are still in the hunt for a uh, cup treble this season. Uh, they could very well win the FA Cup um, and the Champions League this season. Nick, as a as a Liverpool fan, what are you feeling uh, in this moment that you you knew would be coming uh, pretty much since December? Uh, but how do, how does it feel for you right now? Yeah, 
on this podcast, I'm very much an analyst and like I speak with a little bit more of an analytic brain uh, than I think Nathan and Caleb have seen uh, in real life how passionate I am about Liverpool Football Club. I'm going to get a little emotional on this podcast, but that's okay. This team really struggled or has struggled with an identity crisis for the longest time. Uh, ever since and long before Fenway Sports Group purchased the team, they wondered whether or not they were going to be stuck in the past and rely on their tradition and their history with the likes of Kenny Dalglish coming back into the team. Steven Gerrard playing at the like the legend Steven Gerrard playing way, 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 perhaps a little bit too long into his career um, at the age of 34, finally 35, leaving the club. And then they wondered whether or not they should just buy into a totally new philosophy, a youthful philosophy under Brendan Rodgers that actually stank a bit of the championship and uh, mid-table mediocrity for a little bit. Uh, but then they stumbled and they realized that the identity of Liverpool has always been this connection between the club and its fans uh, and mining that the passion of like the working class people of Liverpool, the passion of you'll never walk alone and the meaning of that phrase and the meaning of the chants and the songs raining down from the cop and the belief that like this Liverpool football club means so much more than the soccer on the field. Uh, it means that it's a true family off of it. And the person that they put in charge of the team in 2015 in Jurgen Klopp, I think truly understood that as well. And he's taken that belief of the fans and the belief that Liverpool do belong at the top of the game. And he's turned that into a philosophy. Uh, the fact that they take it one game at a time, but also the fact like they can't do it alone, as we've seen uh, in games like Barcelona where they, by all accounts, should have just been down and out. Um, the fans really got behind them and they rallied back into it because of, A, because of the system and the pressing and the never-say-die attitude that Jurgen Klopp has brought to this team. Uh, but also, as I said before, that there's a real organized method to the madness and he's found a way to bottle up all of this passion uh, and this electricity and this excitement into a brand of football that's A, organized, but extremely dynamic. And they found their identity, and their identity is that they're going to fight to their very last breath. Uh, they're not going to concede an inch of ground to any team. Um, and yeah, sometimes they'll lose, as we saw against Atletico Madrid. Sometimes their philosophy might not be enough, but they're going to do everything they can to die on the hill of the values and style and belief that you know you might not win at the end of the day, but if you try your very hardest uh, in everything that you do, whether it be in football or in life, you will eventually get there. And they got there today. If life would be judged at the end, when we stand in front of that door and, and somebody would ask you, did you win something or not? That would be really strange, I would say. So it's about, did you try everything to improve the place you've been in, the, the, the house you've lived in, the, the, improve the mood, the love, whatever did you try that yes i tried it a lot i tried it every day okay come in and all the other guys who won with all with ignoring all the rules all the laws all that stuff i think they have to use another door congratulations again you touched on this in the last episode as well uh but i think that liverpool has also undergone a slight modernization in terms of their values even though i think they have stayed very true to their core beliefs I remember, uh, you know, like when I was first getting introduced to the Premier League, how uh, close-minded 
I found some of Liverpool's actions as a club uh, and some of their actions by players at the club. You know, we, we talked about the, uh, the Luis Suarez and Patrice Evra incident um, eight years ago. And I think nowadays, as, as, as reluctant as I am to sort of pin uh, moral values onto soccer aesthetics, I think that both with their play on the pitch and in how they interact with the community, you can look at the stats about how the mere existence of Mo Salah uh, on the Mersey has driven hate crime statistics down. Uh, I think Liverpool have certainly transitioned into the the role model for teams that are looking to build themselves into both solid clubs and uh, championship contenders. Yeah, and I mean, one would hope that after, you know, a generation, like it's crazy, 30 years of not winning the league title, that the club would change. Um, and I think Nick pointed this out, but Klopp has been the perfect person to sort of help nudge the club towards, I think, a process of like self-realization. Um, and I think his tenure has very much been one of like two steps forward, one step back, right? And I think that especially plays out the last few years, losing the Champions League, but then the next year coming back to win it. And in that year, you know, having an amazing, an all-time great Premier League season and still losing to somehow an even better Manchester City team. And this year coming back and sort of saying that, that wasn't a fluke and truly, truly demonstrating that they can take that next step. And so I think, A, it's, it's unusual often for a club to put this much faith in a manager, especially after some high-profile errors. Um, it's unusual to have even them losing early in the Champions League this year to Atletico Madrid, despite being the reigning champions. Um, to have that not even shake anybody's faith in him or this team. And I think that sort of in sum has shown how much this club has grown um, over the past five years and also over the last decade. To be perfectly honest, I'm a little speechless. I, we, I think it's like we all knew this was coming for the longest time. You know, Liverpool have been 23 points clear at the top of the table uh, for quite a while now, for months. <laughs> but it still, still feels so surreal to um to say that like now I, I support the Premier League champions. It's it's insane. Uh, even after I think this feels this feel uh, there's something there was something about the Champions League campaign and the victory at Barcelona that feels a little bit different to this. I think this validates everything that Caleb was just talking about. And I think what sets Liverpool apart from every other club in the world is the familial aspect of being a fan of the team and it's they don't differentiate between uh player employee coach staff media fan you'll never walk alone and they you live that it's something that's always stuck out to me in my life it's something that the club has uh has taught me to to believe in and i think that belief was rewarded with a season-long campaign to glory. Forgive me for mixing aphorisms, but could you say it's more than a club? I Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I just think there are some teams that transcend soccer, and Liverpool have always been a club that is both in the community, uh, in like the local Liverpool community and in the global community, as we've seen with uh, Virgil van Dijk and Wijnaldum being the first two players to really back the visually back the black lives matter movement by having the liverpool team take a knee 
they were the first club to do that publicly. So I think also just like the insane thing is that this team is going to get better. Like hopefully they invest in the proper players to take this team to the next level. Um, we already talked about how Liverpool missing out on Werner might be just a little bit concerning. But against Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace did not register a single touch inside the Liverpool box. The first Premier League team to accomplish this defensive feat it was way back in the 2008-2009 season. So that this team is just further solidifying their identity. Uh, they're not done. Uh, Jurgen Klopp isn't done. Uh, he, he signed a five-year deal uh, at the club. And I think we're going to see his big happy face lift several more titles before his reign at Anfield is over. Now, I have one more question for you. Is it Does it feel better having won it after having to wait through coronavirus and having to kind of worry that they might cancel the season and maybe give you the title, maybe not, but then there'd be an asterisk? Or would you rather have won it, you know, whenever you were going to in March? I think it would have felt worse if Liverpool hadn't come out and absolutely just battered Crystal Palace yesterday. As you were saying, just to reinforce the fact that they hadn't lost focus. I think if we had drawn that game and then maybe gone to Man City and then lost to City and had to wait even longer to secure the title, that would have felt pretty bad. Um, I think it feels excellent knowing that Liverpool haven't put taken their foot off the gas uh that awful merseyside derby being kind of an exception to the rule i was happy to wait as long as the premier league wanted me to wait in order to see liverpool lift the title uh we obviously haven't even seen you know they didn't win it by playing today they won it by uh by watching man city go on and lose so it feels really good i think it would have felt a little bit worse had results not gone their way yesterday Fair enough. Well, now I think we should move from one high-flying team to another equally amazing team that keeps giving us storylines, Arsenal Football Club. Nathan, tell us the latest in London. So on on last week's episode, um, I went on a little tirade about uh, the current state of affairs at Arsenal Football Club, and I ended that statement by saying, just burn it down and start over. Burn the whole thing down. Since that time i've had a lot of i i had a lot of driving to this past week and i've done a lot of reflecting on that statement and i think that what i was trying and i found some stats and some data to empirically back up this idea of, of starting the whole thing over all this talk about how klopp has effectively rebuilt liverpool i think has really given a model for how i hope the arteta era um goes obviously klopp took liverpool um, from eighth place in 2015 to fourth to fourth to a second place finish plus a Champions League title. And then this season, uh, obviously winning the league in five years. My guess is that Arsenal's rebuild is going to take a little bit more, more time. But I think it's very easy to view Arsenal or at least my history of Arsenal into a pre and post Highbury era. Given that once Arsenal moved to the Emirates, they pretty much started the decline that I would say uh, we have experienced the absolute worst of uh, this year. They obviously went invincible in 03-04. And then starting in 06-07, these were their finishes. Fourth, third, fourth, third, fourth, third, fourth, fourth, third, second. And then fifth, sixth, fifth and then we're likely going to finish you know somewhere between 10th and 
eighth this year, according to 538. I think people thought that the the dog days of uh, the Wenger era were going to end after that second place finish uh, in the Leicester title winning campaign of 2015-16. But it really was a wolf in sheep's clothing. We finished second with a top scorer of Olivier Giroud. And the next year, when when Wenger announced that he was leaving, it kind of served as the catalyst for this massive cultural avalanche and, frankly, set Arsenal back to a, a, a place where we didn't want to be. And I was listening to Ars Blog this past week on ArsCast, which is the podcast they do, which is probably the best Arsenal podcast or blog out there. And they were talking about how Arsenal are in need of a massive culture shift at the club. Gone are the days of Arsenal as a hardworking, working class, tough as nails team that we saw in the early 2000s. And similar to Liverpool, we find ourselves Liverpool in, in 2014-15, we find ourselves in a situation where we have spent money, big money, fairly poorly. We have dissent inside the locker room. And we have, you know, uh, we had in Unai Emery, a manager who was relatively proven at a decently high level. Um, Arsblog mentioned that Mikel Arteta has now been handed the reins and is trying to finish the job that Unai Emery started. I think that the loss last week to Brighton was the absolute low of the history of Arsenal Football Club in the 21st century. And I think now that we've hit that rock bottom, Arteta has finally been emboldened to say, this is my time. And he is now marking his place uh, in the world of football managers as a no-nonsense manager. And we saw that today. And admittedly, a 2-0 win away to Southampton, a Southampton team with the worst home record in the Premier League, is not much to write home about if you are doing what I am doing and marking this game as the turning point in the annals of of Arsenal Football Club. But Arteta has sent a clear message to the squad that he will no longer be tolerating any kind of shenanigans. All of the spinelessness that was shown last week against Brighton and Hove Albion, watching your team's best player and goaltender go off injured and not even mustering up so much as a shout against the attacker who injured him until after the game was spineless. It was some of the most uh, saddened I've been as a fan watching that happen and seeing how no one would go to his aid. Really, it made me question my entire belief in Arsenal Football Club. But it is clear that today we saw Xhaka rushing to the aid of players who went down on the pitch. He was in the ear of the referees. Arteta cut Guendouzi out of the squad and is prepared to sell him, a troublemaker who adds nothing to the locker room. I truly believe Mikel Arteta is going to be the Jurgen Klopp of Arsenal, whether it takes three years, five years, or seven years for this project to come to fruition. I really believe that this young Spaniard is going to be able to transform Arsenal back into what it once was and uh, rebuild a positive future for this team. And I hope that in five or six years' time, as we get set for the 2026 World Cup, we have a similar podcast where I can finally rejoice in the first Premier League title since 2004 for the Gunners. Nathan, are you willing? Are you willing to wait 30 years for a Premier League title? Well, it would be 22, um, but 
I think as as Nick showed in his answer about whether it was worth the wait, I think it would be worth the wait if we win it in the right way. And I think that's what uh, I'm really concerned about right now is is getting Arsenal back to uh, its identity as a club. I'm a little more. I'm, I mean, I think that rant or that uh, that that speech, Nathan, speech. Yeah, I think soliloquy. That, that soliloquy, while excellent, I'm a little more unconvinced um, as to sort of Arteta's pedigree as a coach. I think he's just a little bit too unproven to truly be, I mean, to truly, for any of us to truly predict that he'll have the same effect uh, long-term as someone like Klopp. Um, but I think you could say the same about Frank Lampard at Chelsea, even though he had that year to coach Derby uh, in the championship. So I certainly really, I appreciate the fact that Guendouzi uh, was cut entirely out of the squad today. And like he looks like he's set to leave the club. Um I think the fact that he was going around when Arsenal were 1-0 up against Brighton, uh, screaming at the Brighton players how little money they make and how much more money he makes than them, and then at the final whistle, uh, going over and tripping Mopai and having that that like clash with him, I think, as you said, really indicates where Arsenal's mental state is at right now. The fact that they're a little spineless, both in uh, mentality and midfield on the pitch. Uh, they certainly have the attacking firepower, to play at the top of the Premier League, but I think the spine of the team really needs to be addressed in the transfer market going forward. And and the fact that um, Arteta approved uh, new deals for the likes of David Luiz and Cedric Suarez indicates that he might not he might not be able to put the money where his mouth is in terms of his philosophy in the transfer market. Yeah, I think that um, the only the, of the three deals um, that he completed. The, the only one that I really have issue with is the David Luiz signing. I think getting Cedric on a free, you're getting a backup right back who can also play left back, um, who is perfectly capable of filling in if Hector Bellerin or Ainsley Maitland-Niles goes down injured uh, for free. And so I don't really have any complaints there. Getting Pablo Mari as a rotational center back option for a grand total of $14 million, including all of his wages, is also a fine deal. We haven't really seen that much from him, but a decent center back, a left-footed center back on the cheap, uh, isn't isn't terrible. David Luiz, he had maybe the worst performance of any player that I've ever seen in an Arsenal jersey uh, against Man City. Uh, in in only twenty five minutes, he committed. It was it was terrible, and we've already gone over this. I'm not going to dwell on it. Um, and, and I understand giving him another year, given that. Arsenal aren't going to have that much money, uh, and he's a very positive and well-liked figure in the locker room, as many uh, like journalists have pointed out. That being said, I would rather just take the the seven and a half million that we spent on his wages, plus the, you know the five million in bonuses, and invest that into our our transfer funds. Um, I would rather deal with even if we have to play, you know, uh, if we have to promote Daniel Ballard or Zach Medley from the youth squad to be that like fifth rotational center back option. I would much rather do that um, and invest funds elsewhere rather than uh, pay Louise to sit around on the bench, similar to what Urzel is doing now. And Nick, I think you make a good point about the spine of the team. I think that Arteta is is very high on William Saliba, as uh, as am I personally. And I think that if we can get one marquee signing in midfield this summer, he'll be content with a, a mediocre rotation of center back pairings that have potential like Saliba, um, if we can really solidify that midfield. Uh, and I think the metrics show that when Arsenal outpossess opponents, 
the number of goals that we concede goes down by like 150% or something like that. So uh, I agree that our spine is weak, both mentally and on the pitch, but I hope that he'll be given the backing to, uh, to solidify that this year. See, my problem with this Arsenal team is that I feel like Arsenal are at their best when their best players are playing to leave Arsenal. And let me explain this. Like Robin Van Persie going absolutely off before moving to Manchester United. Sex Fabregas playing so, so, so well for several years and then leaving to Barcelona. Even Samir Nasri having like 10 and 10 before going to Manchester City. Like, I, I feel like what makes the best Arsenal teams over the past few years, even Thierry Henry in a lot of ways, going to Barcelona, right? Like, is having players that are playing so hard for Arsenal with low key, like an eye to leaving. And I think the problem with this team is that everybody is pretty settled and nobody really wants it. Like, and I think this goes to the culture thing is that everybody's kind of comfortable. They're like, okay, I can pick up my, you know, money. But perhaps this is best exemplified by a player like Ozil, who definitely didn't show ambition by leaving Real Madrid for Arsenal. No offense. Um, and he's perfectly happy to sit on the bench and be paid like twice as much as anyone else on the team. And so I just worry, like, who can you bring in that is going to want it, right? Even like Hector Bellerin, who I think is probably one of the best players on the team and is definitely one of the most loyal servants of Arsenal and one of the best people. I just get the sense that he doesn't really have a ton of fire for improving Arsenal. And I think if he had that fire, he probably would have forced through a move to Barcelona like two years, two years ago. So I don't know. I think that you're looking at a. I, I think Arsenal now are in a much worse position than Liverpool were when Klopp took over, because that was a Liverpool team that still had people like Jordan Henderson um, in the squad that were totally ready to move on with the team. And so I just don't know who in this current squad is the seed of the future. And I think until you find the seed you're not going to be able to grow anything. I think the issue is, and I think it's something that we need to point out going back to Liverpool, is that Klopp finished fourth with what, looking back on it, was really an incomplete team and had a lot less of the quality that Arsenal's squad has right now, especially in attack. That first season that he finished fourth, he only had Sadio, really the only elite attacker or attackers were Roberto Firmino and Sadio Mane. Uh, Coutinho was in and around the squad as well, but he was definitely had an eye towards leaving as he eventually would do. And the important thing to note is that FSG gave Klopp an immense checkbook to go out and secure the deals that eventually would go on and win him the Premier League title. We think about the 75 million, a record fee for a defender that he spent on Van Dyke. He was like, oh, we need Nabi Keita? Cool, we'll spend 50 million on Nabi Keita. We'll spend 25 million on Wijnaldum. We'll spend... We'll spend about like forty million on Fabinho. He went out and he went out and spent big money to secure the spine of the Liverpool squad that would eventually go on to become successful. And I think Arteta is really going to need to prove himself with what is kind of a bare bones squad, both in defense and midfield, before Arsenal are going to feel comfortable enough with or even have the financial power with them not being in Europe. It's looking like they're not even going to make the Europa League this season uh, in order to have a massive impact on the team. I mean. I think Arsenal will make Europe this year. Uh, I think, first of all, they have the chance of getting in through the FA Cup. Um, and they're coming up against Sheffield, who are also a place above them in the table. 
And Sheffield might be the worst positioned non-relegation team since the restart. I watched them on Saturday and they looked well and truly dead in the water. Um, I think a lot of their, uh, a lot of the ways that they were surprising teams earlier in the year with their tactics has been nullified by the break because it's pretty clear looking at their squad that they just don't really have the uh, innate qualities of a team like Arsenal or Spurs, who are the two teams surrounding them at the table. It's what Caleb said about um, the fact that the restart was going to be the hardest on the teams that survive just based off of compactness and teamwork and defense. That's the hardest thing to sort of pick up and go on from after a restart like this. Right. So it's entirely possible that between uh, how the Champions League plays out this year, whether or not Man City's ban gets upheld, where Arsenal finish and the FA Cup that Arsenal do make Europe. That being said, uh, one of the things that I've sort of only been peripherally aware of is that Arsenal has this massive pull um, with particularly non-English players. And this is something that was also brought up on this podcast, but it's one of the things that influenced Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to come. Arsenal, uh, amongst players, is still thought of as the biggest club in London. And while that might not reflect on the pitch this year or even the past two or three years, they still do have this reputation for being a big club. And so while I do agree that I think Arsenal have never been and are not going to be the most financially powerful team in the Prem, if we can spend our money wisely, um, then I think that there's a chance that we'll be able to pull off a similar rebuild. I do think that it is going to be more difficult, though, uh, in terms of the way our squad is currently constructed as well as sort of our backroom situation. But, you know, you're talking about what players are going to be the seed of this team, uh, Caleb, to use your metaphor. I mean, Bukayo Saka has been one of our best players this year. Resigning him should be, you know, an absolute priority for us this year. You've got players like Kieran Tierney, who have looked pretty good uh, in his only, you know, three appearances post, post-COVID and post-injury problems. He's only 23 years old. You know, um, even players like Lucas Torreira is only 24. Uh, and of course, Inketia and Martinelli and Pepe are all under 25 as well. So I'm not saying that I, I don't think that Arsenal necessarily have a Jordan Henderson, but I do think that it's possible for us to find one or for us to make one. Um, we've seen Saka being played in midfield and looking really bright and lively. Even players like Joe Willock have the chance to mature to a Premier League level. And so I think that. Maybe I was a little too overambitious in saying that I think that Arsenal can rebuild in the same way Liverpool did. But I do think that we have a lot of young talent at the club right now. I think Arteta has a very good idea of what he wants to do tactically. I think that some of his man management and, and more managerial uh, duties, he'll have to learn with age. We saw Arsenal mess up a substitution in the Brighton game that ended up costing us late on. Um, that was a paperwork issue on the touchline. And those kind of things will get resolved as with any job when you uh, get more experience. And so I'm prepared to trust him. I'm prepared to wait as well. I would much rather have faith in a rebuilding project than do what I've been doing for the past six years and uh, meander around waiting for someone to come in and give Arsenal an, an identity. And so I think that for the future, that's what I'll be looking for most is finding an, an an ethos and sticking to it the one thing we've gone a little bit too long on arsenal here and we're going to transition to talking about a certain club that i don't want to talk about today especially since liverpool just won the premier league um another team up north in manchester but 
I think the thing I will say about Arsenal as we transition away from them is that they might be the biggest club known publicly around the world in London, but another huge club in London is making big strides uh, in personnel in order to get back into the the top three conversation, top two conversation in the Premier League in Chelsea. And you have to look at the way that Frank Lampard has so effectively defined his style at Chelsea, that being a very quick um, approach to the game and a little bit more direct than we've seen at that club in recent years. Uh, the fact that he's getting players like Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech to address the spine of the team. And those players, while they're not, Werner probably is about on the cusp of world-class uh, Ziyech might have a little bit of a ways to go. But we've seen that uh, Lampard has had an immediate impact at Chelsea and he's been rewarded uh, with finances in order to take his style to the next level. So hopefully that's the blueprint as well for Arsenal and Arteta. But uh, Caleb, I believe there's another Premier League club that we do have to unfortunately discuss. Yeah, it's Manchester United who after, I don't know, seven, eight long years finally look like Manchester United again and I think it's fitting that the day they look like Manchester United again is the first time that Pogba and Fernandes start together and also the first time that Manchester United have a Premier League hat-trick since Sir Alex Ferguson left the club through Anthony Martial. I mean Manchester United looked almost complete against Sheffield and it easily in their 3-0 and it easily could have been more if Rashford had not weirdly shown a complete inability to strike the ball um, on the day. But I think this team is very, very, very close to being complete. Um, And I think all they really need is a world-class right winger. Yeah, and I also think that it's entirely possible that their world-class right winger they already have on their team in Mason Greenwood. I've been incredibly impressed with him every time I've seen him this year. And we've seen the theater of dreams uh, be lit up by these young players. Like I remember when Rashford debuted with his five goals in his first four games, Greenwood might not have delivered on all of that end product yet, but you know, between the rotational pieces that they have in that spot, I think that uh, they're more than capable of, of finishing in a European place. But there is one transfer that they could make that is so glaringly obvious that it would dominate the tabloid headlines. And indeed, it already has been dominating tabloid headlines for the past six months. Can United tempt Jaden Sancho to Old Trafford? And would he be worth the money as a 117 million pound transfer? My obvious answer is yes. Listen, 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 listen. Uh, One second, just listen. As much as I don't want to talk about United today, as much as I think Harry Maguire looks like the Premier League equivalent of Lenny from Of Mice and Men, (laughs) (laughs) as as much as Manchester United fans literally support Satan, it's in the name, they're a satanic cult. Uh, and when they support the Red Devils, uh, whenever they chant that, I just want to point that out, that if you are a uh, believer in all things spiritual, maybe Man United isn't the way to go. They did look really, really good against a compact unit in Sheffield United, and they looked really excellent as well in their first game back from the restart against Spurs. Uh, I think Ole has found a perfect way to use an aging player like Nemanja Matic, just allowing him to uh, sit right in front of the back four and sweep up all the junk while Fernandez and Pogba 
can advance into the other half of the field and do their thing. I think Greenwood still has a bit of a ways to go. He's a bit spotty in places. His finishing, while wow, it's really, really good. His movement is really, really good. I think he still needs has he needs he needs just a little bit to cook. Um, but yeah, Nathan, I think Jaden Sancho would be the perfect player for United to get. Not only because he can make an immediate impact on the team. Uh, he's English. He's a huge name. He'd immediately become a Premier League star. But it would also allow Mason Greenwood the time to develop into an elite right winger slash striker, which he certainly has the potential to do, as we've seen this season. Uh, I think we were all kind of laughing when Ole took the helm. Ole's at the wheel, haha. But I think he's trusted in the youth in a similar way that Frank Lampard is trusted in the youth. And he's done it in a, in a way that is yielding a lot of results. And now, we're, we're, I mean, Pogba is going to stay at the club by all indications. It doesn't look like any team is going to come in and get him, uh, especially if the club progresses in the way that it's progressing under uh, Solskjaer. Dude, I was, I, I was reminded of how good Paul Pogba is in this game, um, especially towards, towards the end before Manchester United's quintuple, quintuple substitution, new Premier League first um, that Solskjaer can claim. Uh about his just immense dribbling abilities, despite just his height. In a lot of ways, he is like the Ibrahimovic of midfield, in that the way he moves his feet and the deftness and the agility of his play just totally belies his physical stature. And I think, and I know this is not a great prediction, I mean, it's not a unique one, but I think it's what a lot of people expected to see whether... Fernandez and Pogba could dovetail well and I think the answer is an absolute yes um, and that is a truly terrifying prospect not only for the rest of the season in the run-in but also next year when hopefully uh, they'll get a full campaign together yeah and I, I think the nice thing Nick you were talking about like the tactical role that Ole had uh, that Ole had Matic playing in I think that you can really plug Fred in that position you can also plug uh, Scott McTominay, who I think is probably actually the best all-around player of the three of them, and get similar results. So I think this summer, uh, if United can get Sancho and maybe even bring in another center back, I think this is a, a team that has the right mix of uh, young emerging talent like Brandon Williams, who looks to be, a at the very least right now, a Premier League capable left back. Uh, and Mason Greenwood, who I didn't realize this, but he already has 14 goals for the senior side. And admittedly, a lot of those came in the Europa League, but that's still a pretty impressive number. Uh, so I do think that United are uh, completing the end of their rebuild right now, if you will. And uh, actually, not to go back to Arsenal for too long, but we saw Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson leave, and then Sir Arsene Wenger leave. Not Sir Arsene Wenger yet, but uh, Arsene Wenger leave. And... Uh, I think those might be more analogous situations given where those clubs were and dealing with the departure of a club legend. I think United might have found the right club legend to replace him in the end. Yeah, um, I'm just looking at the scenes right now. It looks like people are pouring out into Liverpool City Centre. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. You know, it's not the best in terms of uh, stopping the coronavirus from spreading in England. But, you know, I think it just shows that there's been a long wait for Liverpool to succeed. And I have a quote here by Jordan Henderson. Um, when we had the lockdown, that changed a bit because I think I had more time to think. You've got to stay focused, stay positive, and pray that you get to finish the season off. 
it's great to get over the line and finally win the Premier League. So potentially that this shows everyone that if you stay positive, you put in the effort, you'll eventually get across the finish line. This goes for Arsenal. This goes for Manchester United. This goes for every one of you listening. Cheers to Liverpool. I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. You'll never walk alone, and we will see you all next time.